Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Like it or not, the race for 2020 has begun. Oh my God. No! I mean, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Shenanigans? Oh, jeez. Hooray! Question mark? Uh, by the way, I am one of those who likes it, okay? Day by day, the Democratic field grows, with more and more presidential hopefuls throwing their hats into the ring. It's a well-worn script. First, you hear this. I'm exploring a candidacy for President of the United States. I am running for President of the United States. Today, I'm launching an exploratory committee. I have decided to run and will be making a formal announcement. I'm filing an exploratory committee. And then, of course, the obligatory trips to Iowa. Hello, Council Bluff! California Senator Kamala Harris is making her way across to Iowa. I have had the best time, I can tell you, the last few days in Iowa. A new poll shows who Iowa Democrats want as their candidate. Now, there are a couple of things that distinguish this group from primaries past. It's the most diverse we've seen. Women, people of color, the first openly LGBTQ person. But there's something else noticeably different this time around. In my past, I said and believed things that were wrong. I know we haven't always gotten things right. I really regretted that I didn't look beyond my district. I'm deeply sorry for having said them. It's really amazing because it's not just one person. It feels like almost everyone running is apologizing for something. This is Politics with Amy Walter, and today on The Takeaway, why are so many Democrats kicking off their campaigns with apologies? Is there a right way for a politician to admit they were wrong? A good apology has a number of parts. Come along with us, folks. You won't be sorry. I'm sorry, so sorry, that I was such a We start with James Homan of The Washington Post, who was one of the first to notice that many of the Democratic presidential candidates are starting out their races with apologies. I asked him to tell me more about what he was seeing. The longer that you've been in public life, the more you have to apologize for. And what it's a reflection of is really how much the Democratic Party has changed on a host of issues, on guns, on immigration, on a a lot of economic issues. And so all these candidates who have been on the scene for a really long time, you know, if you're Joe Biden and you got elected to the Senate in 1972, you have a record with lots of things to apologize for. And it also kind of the locus of energy right now in the Democratic Party is on the left. And so what people are largely apologizing for are apostasies where they kind of have broken with liberal orthodoxy. So the big one is Kirsten Gillibrand. You know, she was elected to a a very conservative House district, and she was able to defeat a Republican incumbent in 2006 by attacking him for being soft on immigration and being weak on border security. She literally ran ads saying he was weak on border security. Now she's calling for the abolition of ICE. (laughs) That's quite an evolution in a decade. And I think one of the things you've seen is that's a big liability for her. The first real interview she did after announcing her candidacy on Stephen Colbert was to go on Rachel Maddow. And Maddow opened the interview by outlining seven or eight issues where she has has basically flip-flopped and and asking Gillibrand, essentially inviting her to apologize. And you know, the the first words out of Gillibrand's mouth were, I was callous. And she basically really apologized 
at length on immigration and for being insensitive, for being too focused on her district and not the country. And I think you're going to see a lot more of that. You saw Joe Biden apologize for his role in the crime bill of the 1990s, which only 18 months ago in his memoir, he called one of his proudest achievements and, you know, celebrated his role in the crime bill. Now he's he's apologizing for the crack cocaine disparity that sent so many more African-Americans to prison. So I, I think this you're going to see it, I think, with some of the other candidates, too. And that's the other thing, James, is it's one thing that, you know, Joe Biden, who has a very long track record, has to go back in time and explain positions he took when the Democratic Party looked very different. Right. But this isn't just how the party has transformed in the last 40 years. We're talking about how quickly the party has transformed in the last 10 years. So even if you've only been in politics for the last 10 years, you may find yourself out of sync with the party. It's amazing, Amy. And you say 10 years and you're right, but it's even true five years from now. The party has moved to the left since the Obama era ended. And there's polling to back that up. The percentage of Democrats who identify as liberal is up like 17 percentage points since 2016, which is, is pretty remarkable. At some point, do Democrats risk pushing themselves so far to the left to please a Democratic base that they risk the opportunity to speak to voters in the middle? And are you talking to Democratic folks out there, voters, other people in the mix who are worried about that? Yes. A lot of Democrats are terrified about it. And frankly, some of the people who have passed on running did so because they felt that there were too many things they would have to apologize for if they got in. This is something that weighs heavily on someone like uh, Mike Bloomberg, who very much wants to run, is looking at it really seriously. And he's taken a lot of heat in just the last couple of days for the stop and frisk policy in New York City that was so unpopular with minorities. And he sort of is tried to defend it, but not, but he's not apologizing. And right. He's one of the you know, few who's actually not apologizing. He's not apologizing right. for stop and frisk. He's not apologizing for his position on marijuana. He says, I still think right. that's stupid, legalizing marijuana. And he's not apologizing for being a really super rich guy right. and not, you know, taking on the sort of corporate Wall Street world. Well, and that's, and so Deval Patrick is someone who chose not to run. He spent the last several years working at Bain you know, the same firm Mitt Romney had worked at. And I think one of the calculations that he made was that it would have been really hard to talk about kind of his pro Wall Street record. I talk to Democratic strategists every day who are very worried that the zeitgeist is, is so far to the left. You know, their focus is let's just nominate someone who can beat Donald Trump. And they worry that kind of this race to apologize for everything and to please sort of the identity groups in the Democratic coalition is going to make the eventual nominee less electable and play into Trump's hands. The other question is this, you know, Donald Trump ran very effectively in 2016 as the guy who wouldn't apologize for anything. His mantra was basically, apologies are for wimps, you don't back down. And voters seemed to, at least in 2016, see that as an asset. Do you think that the Republicans can use this apologizing sort of mentality that Democrats are in right now against Democrats in the general election? And do you think voters are going to penalize Democrats for looking sort of too mushy and too hand-wringy and not resolute enough? 
Yeah, I do. I think that it does sort of look weak, and it also raises questions about what are your core convictions. Trump is absolutely going to try to say, you know, these Democrats will say and do anything. The term he keeps using is the Democratic Party has been radicalized, Mm -hmm. and it isn't the Democratic Party of of old. This is an age-old debate. Flip-flopping isn't new, as as you know, Amy. Every politician, you know, the the euphemism they like to use is evolution, that they've evolved Mm -hmm. on the issues. Obama flip-flopped, George W. Bush flip-flopped. It's going to happen. And the question is whether you can present it as something that you're doing sort of from the heart and if you have kind of an authentic origin story. So I think voters will forgive politicians if it feels like these changes are coming from the heart. What do you see as the most important thing for Democratic voters right now, that they are ideologically pure Somebody like, say, an Elizabeth Warren, who has been pretty consistent in her mm-hmm. positions, and granted, she's only been in office since 2012, mm-hmm. versus somebody who has taken lots of different positions? Or are they going to prize something else, electability or mm-hmm. a good narrative or authenticity? Yeah, I mean, I've spent a lot of time talking to voters in the early states recently, and I think that that's up in the air. Even, you know, Elizabeth Warren, for example, has changed her position in the last six years on education. She was a big supporter of charter schools. Now she's moved to take a more Mm. traditionally democratic pro-union position. We're still more than 400 days out or (laughs) close to 400 days from some of these primaries. So I think it'll evolve a lot. You know, one of the conversations I have perennially with the top strategists for each of these 2020 democratic candidates is what are the lessons of Trump's victory? You know, one campaign manager for one of the Democrats who's already declared told me, you know, we think the lesson of 2016 is that people want you to tell it like it is, even if that means using profanity, because people found that refreshing. You know, and I said, I don't, I don't think that the lesson of Donald Trump's victory was that he used profanity. But that's the kind of the open debate is what is the lesson of 2016? And I think one of the risks for Democratic candidates, and frankly, for the media too, is refighting the last campaign. It's not 2016 anymore. And we're trying to calibrate, but you don't want to over calibrate and you don't want to necessarily anoint a front runner or kind of settle on a so-called narrative too soon because we really don't know where voters are going to go. And especially when there's so many candidates, we're going to end up spending a lot of time talking about people that aren't on most listeners' radar right now. That's not not a reflection on listeners and how much they follow politics. It's just a reflection of how many people are in the race. You know, I, I wouldn't be surprised if Jay Inslee, the governor of Washington state, has sort of a moment. He's staking his entire campaign on climate change. He sort of decided that's going to be the issue he talks about constantly. And maybe there will be something that happens that makes climate change salient. And maybe he'll sort of have a good debate. And all of a sudden, we'll be talking about Jay Inslee constantly for two weeks, and he could catch fire, or he could never catch fire and be a total non-factor the whole time. It's just, there's so many candidates, and it is an unpredictable environment. James Homan, thank you so much for talking to us. Thanks, Amy. Stephanie Cutter is a Democratic strategist who worked on President Obama's 2012 campaign. She, too, has noticed all the apologies coming from the Democratic presidential candidates this election cycle. Here's her explanation for it. I think a lot of people learned and in some cases overlearned some of the mistakes made in 2016. You know, when Hillary Clinton didn't apologize for the use of her private server, (laughs) which looking back on it now should have been a non-issue, but it became an issue and it became an issue that she couldn't control. It took her too long to apologize. She lost any leverage on explaining why she had a server. Nobody wants that to happen again, which is why people are moving so quickly 
to put some of the things that they think will be problematic in a primary behind them. Let's also talk about the dramatic contrast, though, between not just on (laughs) substance and on style, but on the issue of apologies. You have in President Trump someone who famously does not apologize, who has basically equated any apology with weakness. He, like many Republicans, went after President Obama for what he said was this apology tour that he took throughout the world apologizing for America. I'm a president who will never apologize for America. So tell me how you think that matchup works. Are voters, did they prize maybe somebody who's willing to say I'm standing up for what I believe in and over somebody who is willing to say I made mistakes? I think that what President Trump did in 2016 work for 2016. I don't think it's going to work in 2020. People now have been living the consequences of that, the my way or the highway. And they see that not only does he not admit mistakes, but he makes a lot of mistakes. <laughs> and that's because he doesn't have perspective, that it's, it's about his ego. It's not about putting the country first. It's his ego first. And that's playing out right now in the shutdown where he basically had to fold on the State of the Union and really has no place to go but to negotiate on his position with Nancy Pelosi and House and Senate Democrats. I think the voters generally, and both in a primary and in a general election, certainly there are some things that they don't want to be sacrificed, like protecting this country or protecting the rights of all Americans. However, it's how you get there. And a president that says my way or the highway is not proving to be very fruitful for this country. We're living it. We see it firsthand. He won't be able to get away with that again. I want you to think back. I first met you, must have been in the 2004 Kerry campaign, right? You were on that campaign. Mm -hmm. And the debate internally over things like gay marriage. And now where the party is, not just on that issue, but on immigration, on Mm -hmm. criminal justice, on the role of women. Are you surprised at how far the party has moved on those issues? Or do you think that maybe this is not as dramatic as some people are making it out to be? Well, I think the party has moved, but I think the country has moved along with it. You know, on gay marriage in 2004, we saw it as a liability (laughs) in the presidential race. There were anti-gay marriage ballot initiatives in battleground states that we had to navigate around. We never took them on uh, head on. And fast forward to today, where it's the norm. It is the supermajority of the country that is for equality in marriage. Even things like climate change. In 2004, John Kerry was a leader on addressing global warming, but it wasn't a centerpiece of our campaign because the country wasn't there yet. Certain segments of the Democratic base were there, but in running at a general election, they weren't there. It is amazing to see how far we've come on issues like that in just over a decade. Are there some issues, though, where Democrats are basically ahead of where the public is? Obviously, Republicans believe that is true on issues like the economy, arguing that the Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders model is going to bankrupt the country. It's basically socialism, that they are ahead of where the country is on security and safety. And they talk about things like sanctuary cities and open borders. Are you worried that in the quest to win the nomination, to make sure that the Democratic primary base is happy with the candidate that they get, 
that the ultimate nominee is maybe in step with the Democratic primary, but just too far out of step with where the key swing voters are? I think you have to look at the bigger message. The bigger message is that we need an economy that works for everyone. We need the ability to get ahead. We need opportunity for everybody, not just those at the top. And that's the thread that pulls through all of these candidates and pulls through our party. Now, how do you make that meaningful? How do you make that tangible and how we're going to get there, how we're going to achieve fairness and equality? Those issues will play out over the course of this campaign. I don't think we know yet how it compares in a two-way race against Donald Trump. I think, you know, for instance, a good example is Medicare for All. People like the idea of everybody having access to affordable health insurance. People like the idea of taking insurance companies out of the equation. However, once you start talking about details, these policies are not bulletproof. There are opportunities to paint them in a certain way that doesn't appeal to a supermajority. So I think the party has to be careful. One last question about the number of women that are in, and there may be more, jumping in in 2020. And again, kind of going back to the apology piece of this, do you think it's different and the standards are different for a woman who comes out and apologizes or has to explain her past policies, records, et cetera, versus a man who does that and how voters view that, whether they see a woman doing it is weaker than a man doing that or the expectations for doing it? The way I look at it is that women are more willing to do it. Women are more willing to say, I made a mistake or my views have evolved. However, I think there is an expectation across the board, regardless of gender, that candidates should do it. Candidates should try to get these things behind them if their views have truly evolved. Does it show a sign of weakness because you're a woman? You know, I think history probably suggests yes, but I think the past couple of years has proven to us that the old, <laughs> the old formulas of how to win an election are necessarily true today. I think that the power of women and the acceptance of women at the top of tickets is different than it was even two years ago. So making conclusions about weakness uh, when making a mistake is probably not a safe bet. Stephanie Cutter, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Amy. Ron Bonjean is a Republican strategist. He has been a spokesperson for former Senate Republican leader Trent Lott and for former Speaker of the House Dennis Hastert. He has a different take on these apologies, a more critical one. Running for president is a lot like a job interview. Coming in for your first interview, you know, meaning your announcement, and then having to apologize for past positions is not a great way to start. Like, look, Kirsten Gillibrand, for instance. She is coming out with some baggage from her previous votes and has had the answer for those. Her answers are fine. The apology is fine, but it doesn't sound sincere because it's not. She's taking a next step and running for the national stage. And her apology is reflective of that. It's not that she didn't mean to take those positions back then. She did. She was reflecting the voters at that particular point and stage in her life. Now it's a different time. So an apology, I don't think, is necessarily prudent. Apology should be used for when you have really done something wrong. And it has to be authentic. How do we know if it's authentic? There's no there's no real litmus test for that. It's a gut check among the voters. The problem is the more politicians apologize, the more desensitized Americans have become. That's why it's so fascinating that Donald Trump 
when he doesn't apologize and just sort of plays through whatever crisis de jour is happening, voters, at least his base, finds that refreshing. I think everyone else does too, that, wow, how come he's surviving this? Well, he's not apologizing for one, because if he does, he's probably not going to mean it. If he does mean it, we're going to know, because he never does it. It's interesting. I look back to the post-2012 Republican so-called autopsy, where the RNC went back and did a whole lot of digging on what went wrong for the last two presidential campaigns. And they came out with a document that was somewhat apologetic. It said, Republicans have done a bad job. We haven't reached out to young people, to people of color. And we can't keep doing that or else we're going to keep losing. And of course, the next election, Republicans went against everything that was outlined in that document and said, no, that's not what we want. We want somebody in Donald Trump who actually has a philosophy that flies in the face of everything that you're saying here. What does that sort of tell us about Republican voters? Well, I would say that this is, I mean, a very unique situation. I think any other candidate would have lost to Hillary Clinton. I don't know how you capture the lightning in the bottle that Donald Trump did. Mm -hmm. Although we can see Representative Cortez um, doing some of that on the left. Well, that's the question that we're at at this point in our political era. Is it that voters really want to see a fighter and to them someone who is, whether we want to call it apologizing or explaining, is weak? Yeah, I would say that, that this feels like those who are reflecting Representative Cortez or Trump are creating a new normal. And you're kind of feeling that evolution of, wow, those people are really capturing the attention of the media and voters. Do you think that Republicans look at the political apology differently than Democrats do? Yes. I mean, they're just two different parties, two different beings, so to speak. So, I mean, Republicans view as apologies is immediately, uh, should this person have really apologized or not type of thing. I mean, it can be viewed as weakness right away. I, I do think though, with Democrats, you know, at a national level, though, if you're issuing an apology, that's viewed weak all around. Starting out a campaign and apologizing for past positions isn't the way to go. You're supposed to be talking about the future, not what you did several years ago. Ron Bonjean, thank you so much for joining me. You bet. This week on the New Yorker Radio Hour, Congress has passed a law that will ban TikTok. But why? If you are going to take away an app used by 170 million people, I believe that lawmakers and the government who ostensibly work for us, the American people, owe us more information about why that divestiture is being moved forward. Debating the TikTok ban. That's the New Yorker Radio Hour from WNYC Studios. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you so much. All right, so we've heard from a couple of political insiders on what they think about apologies made by candidates and elected officials, but I'm interested to hear how these apologies rate with someone outside of politics. Marjorie Engel is a writer and one of the founders of SorryWatch.com. It's a site that analyzes public apologies. I played some audio for her of recent political apologies, and she rated them for me. First up, Democratic Rep Tulsi Gabbard of Hawaii. Gabbard recently announced her candidacy for president in 2020, and that announcement was quickly followed by a video apology of her past views on the LGBTQ community. Aloha. 
In my past, I said and believed things that were wrong. And worse, they were very hurtful to people in the LGBTQ community and to their loved ones. Many years ago, I apologized for my words and more importantly, for the negative impact that they had. I sincerely repeat my apology today. I'm deeply sorry for having said them. Okay, what do you think? That's a really good apology. Part of why it's good is she said LGBTQ, which indicates an awareness of exactly who she's apologizing for. People who tend to believe in conversion therapy and sin tend to say homosexual a lot more than LGBTQ. That owns what she did. It shows that she understands the impact. Real people were hurt. And it seems an indication that she wants to do better moving forward. The next is Vice President Biden. He was at a Martin Luther King event addressing something that uh, he and many others who were in Congress in the 90s have been criticized for, which is their vote to support the 1994 crime bill. I haven't always been right. I know we haven't always gotten things right. But I've always tried. Rev, it was your help back in 2010 that Barack and I finally reduced the disparity in sentencing, which we've been fighting to eliminate, and crack cocaine versus powder cocaine. It was a big mistake when it was made. We thought we were told by the experts that crack, you never go back. It was somehow fundamentally different. It's not different. But it's trapped an entire generation. Is that an apology? That was not great. The key phrase there, mistake that was made, that does not show ownership. Who made the mistake? Passive voice does not belong in an apology. In my opinion, he could have used the word racist or he could have used the word, you know, I don't know, disparity in justice um, to make it clear that he knew who he was hurting. Senator Kirsten Gillibrand was on the Rachel Maddow show the other day after she announced that she was running for president and she was asked about her past positions on immigration. Well, I don't think it was um, driven from my heart. I was callous to the suffering of families who want to be with their loved ones. And so looking back, I just, I really regretted that I didn't look beyond my district and talk about why this is an important part of the United States story. It's not an apology because she didn't say sorry or apologize. It's regret, which again is more about her own feelings. But it sounds like she is really trying to wrestle with the past. So some of the newest members of Congress have been asked to apologize for things like Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib, who used an expletive in reference to the president. What I can tell you is I am a person that is, you know, authentically me. I'm very passionate uh, about fighting for all of us. And uh, the, the use of that language, you know, is, was a teachable moment for me. And I understand I am a member of Congress, and I don't want anything that I do or say distract us. Uh, and that's the only thing I apologize for, is that it, it was a distraction. However, um, I have a right to be this passionate, this upset. Seems like it's a little bit everything in there. It's a nice potpourri there. Um, it actually <laughs> reminds me of when Samantha B apologized for... Uh, using the C word. Her apology was also, if I recall correctly, about being a distraction, using language that upset people, but not about the content, not about the emotion and the feeling behind it. Do not apologize if you don't think you did anything worth apologizing for. Both of them were very careful to target their apologies to what they felt they did wrong, not what people might have been angry at, but they don't feel they did badly. 
A good apology has a number of parts. It has to start with, I'm sorry, or I apologize. Regret is not the same thing. Regret is about how you feel. Apologies are about making other people feel better. You have to say the thing that you did. It's not, I'm sorry about what happened, or I'm sorry about the incident. Say what you're apologizing for. Make it clear that you understand the impact of what you did, not on you, (laughs) on other people. And tell us what safeguards you're going to take to make sure this doesn't happen again. An apology doesn't exist in a vacuum. It's a preface to better behavior in the future. Is there something inherently different between the kind of apology a normal person makes and (laughs) one that a politician makes? That's a great question. I mean, there are private apologies and there are public apologies. If a politician is apologizing for a specific incident that affected one person, say, I don't know, Anita Hill, that person would have to apologize privately as well as publicly. But a public apology is also an act of performance, and there are better and worse performances. And we'd like to think that a performance can also be authentic and emotional. It's not mutually exclusive. Well, that's what I want to get to. And I talk to political consultant types about their advice to candidates when they work with them about having to apologize or explain, defend votes, policies, et cetera. The first word they always use is authentic. And Mm -hmm. it feels to me that term has just gotten so abused over the years. We use authentic to sell toothpaste now. (laughs) Right. So how do you judge, how does one judge an authentic apology? As you say, authentic, it's such a buzzword now. It's like empowered. It doesn't mean anything. Mm. But I think we all have an ear, particularly in this age of social media, for when an apology is full of it, when it's clearly been crafted by publicists and crisis consultants. And a problem with what experts say, whether they're political consultants or often hospital lawyers, is they don't want to admit culpability. They want to say, I'm sorry, without saying, I'm sorry. And I think the rest of us see through that immediately, and it often makes people actually angrier. So we seem to be in this conflicting period now. Maybe we've always been in it. But the way I am reacting to it is we have, on the one hand, the sorry, not sorry culture. We have a president who makes a point of talking about the fact that he doesn't apologize for anything and he punches right back. Yep. And yet we also have a culture that says we really prize authenticity. We want somebody in public life who can admit when they're wrong. We need somebody who can show us sort of our better selves. You know, we are at a time of transition now. And a lot of, you know, certainly in times past, it wasn't masculine to apologize. It was, you know, it's Trumpian. You own it. You did it. You know, you are who you are. You're a man. You don't apologize. But I feel like Part of all of the anxiety that we're feeling is that we are in a time of transition where we want a new portrait of what masculinity is. That's why people are so angry about that darn Gillette ad. You know, there are always going to be a core of people who cling to this notion of real men don't apologize, which in fact was the title for Jim Belushi's memoir. But I think the rest of us, you know, an apology can, a good apology can be so cathartic if we're not lashing out and immediately doing this gotcha thing. When we hear somebody really struggling to do better and you can see that they're really processing it, that can be really 
affirming for everyone. We have to think that we can grow and change. Sorry Watch is not about doing only takedowns. We want to also celebrate good apologies because that's social glue for us, for everyone. So when does one apologize and when does one say, you know what? Yeah, I said that. And you know what? I'm not going to apologize for it. I know you want me to say I'm sorry for it, but I'm not. If you're not sorry, don't apologize because you're going to apologize crappily and we're all going to feel it and it's going to make matters worse. What I hope is that people who need to apologize will hear the people around them saying, look, you really screwed that up. And it won't only be to get elected. It will be because, you know what, my opinions on politics, on policy, on justice have changed. And I want to own what I said in the past because I believed it then, but I don't believe it now. And then you have to walk the walk. An apology is only a preface to doing better as you move forward. Are there any political apologies that you have heard or that you have rated that you would put as examples of doing it right and then the ones that you would give as an example of doing it wrong, ones that really stand out to you? The header on SorryWatch.com is the word sorry written in skywriting, and it's from Apology Day or Sorry Day in Australia where apology to the Aborigines is an ongoing process, and it's a collective political bit of reckoning. That's true of Germans, too. It's a constant state of reckoning for national screw-ups. There, you know, a problem with with many political apologies is I've already apologized. I mean, that was a Kevin Hart apology, right? I've apologized a million times. You should not feel bad about apologizing a million times if you really, really screwed up. Is there a correct way to receive an apology? That is a great question. We uh, Apologies are mandatory. Forgiveness is not. You have to apologize if you screw up. Morally, as a human being, you have to apologize. But the person who you're apologizing to does not have to forgive you. That's why we don't we don't believe in ending an apology with can you forgive me or will you forgive me. That's putting the other person on the spot. And forgiveness is a gift to be granted. You don't ask for a gift, especially when you're the one who should be in the supplicant position because you're the one who screwed up. Marjorie, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you for having me, Amy. Good luck. Marjorie Ingle is a writer and one of the founders of SorryWatch.com. We asked for your thoughts on public apologies. This is Karina Givens of Arkansas City, Kansas. Public apologies by elected officials are effective when, for example, the president apologizes for atrocities of the nation and its culture. But delivery has to be sincere. This is Andrew from Roanoke Park, California. Public apologies are usually worse than saying nothing at all. There's never any emotion, and you can tell they're only there because they have to be. The apology I remember the most was Ronald Reagan in the Oval Office talking about Iran-Contra. As angry as I may be about activities undertaken without my knowledge, I am still accountable for those activities. I was 10, and I remember it was a big deal at the time. He said, a few months ago, I told the American people, I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true. But the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. Well, Ronald Reagan did spend much of 1987, when this apology took place, with job approval ratings barely cracking 50 percent. But when we talk about Ronald Reagan now, in retrospect, Iran-Contra doesn't get nearly as much attention as, say, his economic record or his leadership in the Cold War. 
And as far as the raft of political apologies we've been hearing from the 2020 Democratic candidates, well, here's my take. They are running to catch up with where they think their voters are on the key issues. To win the nomination, the thinking goes, a Democrat has to show as much daylight as possible between their views and votes and those of President Trump. If Trump has supported something, well, you better be against it. What we don't know, of course, is how Democratic voters will respond to these apologies. Do they punish those who strayed and reward the candidate who's been the most ideologically consistent? Or are they willing to forgive and move on? In 2016, Trump was all over the map on policies and positions, and that obviously didn't prevent him from winning the nomination. As one Democratic strategist recently told me, Americans don't care if you flip as long as you flip in their direction. Here's the other thing. Voters are smart and perceptive. They don't have time to build elaborate spreadsheets that track candidate voting records and changes in policy positions. They mostly go with their gut and their heart. They can smell insincerity and calculation. And in the end, the candidate who can demonstrate authenticity, clarity of purpose, and an ability to beat Donald Trump is the one who's likely to carry the nomination. That's all for us today. Remember, you can always find us on Facebook. And of course, call us anytime at 877-8-MY-TAKE or send us a tweet. I'm at Amy E. Walter and the show is At The Takeaway. Thanks so much for listening. This is Politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway.